Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. With their son Matthew missing, Mark and Faye Leveson soon became disillusioned by the police investigation. Matt was last seen in the early hours of the morning on Sunday the 23rd of September 2007 in the company of his boyfriend, Michael Atkins. Atkins gave various versions of events for the Sunday of Matt's disappearance. He first said that he woke up to find that Matt was missing. Later, he claimed they'd spent the day together but that Matt went out that night and didn't return. Matt's car was found on Thursday the 27th of September with what would later become crucial evidence in the boot of the vehicle. When Atkins was brought in for questioning on the same day Matt's car was found, Thursday the 27th, he had been interviewed as a person participating in a voluntary interview. But once he lied about his trip to Bunnings on the day Matt disappeared, saying he'd been home all day except for a short walk to the local mall, His status in the interview changed to suspect. Accordingly, the police were obligated to recaution Atkins as a suspect before proceeding with the interview. Given their failure to recaution, all records of the interview from that point on may not be admissible in court for the purposes of any criminal trial. The police decided to turn to the Levison family for help. Well, the police said to us that early, very early on, would you guys be prepared to do anything to help the case? That's a slight question, of course you could. All right, well, at some point we may ask one of you to do something, but if we do that, you cannot tell the other person, your partner, you have asked you to do this. So whatever it is, just, just, just ask, of course. And uh, in the January, they got a Supreme Court warrant for me to wear a listening device. It gives you a 28-day window to wear this listening device. and. Uh, they said, don't tell Faye what's happening. and uh, Otherwise you could get charged. I'd get charged. At the time when they said they might ask one it, or it the other, me. they said, whoever's asked, you can't tell the other one, otherwise you could face charges. On a night in January 2008, Mark attended the police station so that he could be fitted with a listening device. Shortly after being fitted with the device, the Levisons visited Atkins at his Cronulla apartment under the proviso that they were collecting some of Matt's property from the unit. I went to the police station and uh, they wired me up. Under one armpit was, was a transmitting device. The other armpit was a recording device. And on each shoulder was a microphone for each unit. And then um, he made some excuse to meet Faye. We were getting Maddie's rich, uh, That's right, getting, belongings getting, back. Getting, so we met, went down the unit to meet his solicitor and get Matt's belongings back from, from Atkins or something that was still down at the unit. And um, the police gave us... An innocuous phrase to say. If we use that phrase twice in succession, that we're under duress and they're coming with guns drawn and knocking the door down. 
we never felt for our safety, so we never, of course, used that. And uh, we had a, you know, the worst part was I shook the creep's hand, failed to give him a kiss and a cuddle, because our goal was to say, oh, you're a nice bloke, why would they think it's you? For all the disgust they felt at having to meet with the man who they suspected was responsible for Matt's disappearance, the Levisons were not able to get Atkins to admit that he knew anything about where Matt might be. Police asked if Mark and Faye would be willing to try again. The Levisons agreed to have a second go, even though they hated acting as if they were on Atkins' side. The police said to us, about a week or so later, look, this listening device warrant has a duration of 28 days. So let's have another go. We win that window still, so let's go back again. Mark and Faye attended the police station a few weeks later so that Mark could be fitted with a listening device for a second time. It was at this point the police told them about that crucial evidence located in the boot of Matt's car months earlier, a Bunnings receipt for the purchase of duct tape and a matic. They said, we're going to tell you something before you go and see him. This information we're going to pass on to you, you can't tell a soul. You can't tell the two other boys, you can't tell friends, you can tell no one. And so again, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. And they mentioned they bought the matic and cloth tape from, from Bunnings. Five minutes before they sent us out, they said, oh, we have to tell you that he's bought a matic and tape. Just like that. At the first time we knew. I just sat there going, oh, my God, oh, my God. You can imagine what was running through my head, what he, he did to Matty with. Or whatever, yeah. yeah, so that's running through my head the whole time. What the hell has he done? By now, Matt had been missing for four months and the Levisons couldn't believe this information had been kept from them. They were told it was for operational reasons. But now that the police needed the Levisons' help, they were more open, even sharing that Atkins denied going to Bunnings despite CCTV footage showing him purchasing the items. Police explained to the Levisons that their task was to reveal to Atkins that they knew about his Bunnings trip, to try and get him to admit to lying and capture that on the recording. However, the Levisons were kept in the dark about the truth behind why such a recorded admission from Atkins was crucial, because there was a chance that what was said in the initial police interview may not be admissible in court. This time, when Mark and Faye attended the unit, it was under the proviso that they wanted to give him something that they had planned to give Matt for his 21st. On attending the unit, Atkins didn't want to talk to the Levisons, but Mark and Faye persisted. He eventually admitted to them that he did lie, but only because he was scared of the police. They asked him why he bought the matic. He said that he and Matt were going to grow zucchinis and he was going to use it to make a vegetable garden. Faye got a, um, would you call it a champagne glass or a wine glass? Yep. Was a champagne glass with a frangipani in 21st on it. And she said, that, yeah, we're going to give this to, to Matt, but um, we've got to give this to you. Because, again, we think you're a nice bloke and yeah, yeah, we, we wouldn't be involved. And, and at least on that occasion too, yeah, we're not trained investigators, but I, I got the bastard to admit, because he was not denying at that stage he ever had a matic. I got him to admit he had a matic. So we said, look, please think it's you. They say you bought a matic. You know, why would they say that? He said, oh, well, it was for the, the garden bit out the back, the veggie patch out the back. So bang, he sees you got that matic. That's number one. And I never thought to ask, where is it now? During their recorded conversation with Atkins, the Levisons also asked him if he thought Matt might have died from a drug overdose. He said that the reason he didn't think Matt had died of an overdose was because Matt was careful with the doses he took. This is a transcript of their conversation that followed. Faye. 
All these things go through your mind. I thought, maybe he's OD'd somewhere and the person that's found him has panicked and thought, I'll get rid of him and just try to conceal it all in a blind panic. Atkins. If it's just, like, ecstasy, you don't OD really. It's not like heroin and that sort of stuff. Faye. So there's no way he would have OD'd? Atkins. No. Faye. So he was here when you went to Bunnings? Atkins. Mm Mm-hmm. Faye. Was he asleep or drug-induced sleep? Atkins. No, he wasn't drugged. I mean, Matt was usually very good. Like, he was always pretty careful, really. He'd, you know, tell his friends what to take and how much. Faye. So you can honestly say that you don't know what happened to him? Atkins. No, I don't. Mark and Faye returned to the police station after their meeting with Atkins to debrief with the detectives. It would be another aggravating visit. Then to go there, to have to give him that glass, have to give him a kiss and cuddle, it was just horrendous. Both On both occasions that I did that, I went back to the police station, I just vomited. And then back at the police station, they said to us, um, said to Faye, Oh, we thought you would have gone ballistic, gone off at him. And they thought he might put him under a stress reaction. And Faye said, well, you didn't tell us that. You just told us to befriend him and why is it you? We didn't know this. They said, oh, don't be silly. You'd never get his trust. They wanted me to be a bill carrier, mm. explode at him like I have been known to do. But, I mean, I, do, I wanted to get his trust. Oh, don't be stupid. You'd never get his trust. That's what they said to me. Sometimes Mark and Faye really questioned the logic behind what some of the police said to them. They kept their word not to tell a soul about Atkins visiting Bunnings to buy duct tape and a matic. They didn't even breathe a word of it to their two other sons. As far as Mark and Faye knew, the secret was only known by the police and them. But there was a leak. No one knew but Faye and I, and of course the police. Not long after, there's a hairdresser, and she mentioned to Faye, just in passing, about a week or two later, I hear Atkins bought him picking shit to get rid of Matt. And I had to stand there and deny it. I said, I've never heard of that. Oh, did he really? She said, yeah, one of my clients knows somebody, uh, she was at a masseuse, and they've told her that this is what happened. And I said, oh, Really? So I get on to the police. They said they'd check it out. And when they rang the hairdresser. Or check it and, and conduct the investigation. Yeah. yeah. This is serious. And they came back and said, oh, the person won't give me their name. They've, they're denying it. So I pushed it a bit hard. And then they came back and said, oh, they think they heard in the pub. They're not sure where they heard it. And they just let it go. Now, we, we were under we, threat. Yeah, of prosecution. Gosh. Another kick in the guts. So you can't tell your boys what's going on. You can't tell a soul. And that put us in a very bad light with the boys because once they found that out, we'd get it thrown back at us quite a bit. I can only imagine. So with that, you guys have kind of taken the lead. Your two other sons are somehow carrying on with jobs, socialising, having their relationships. And were you updating them with what you, even little bits? Did they ask? Did they want to know what the progress was? They did. And we sort of, 
mum being mum and it backfired on me trying to protect them. So some of the stuff that I thought was, especially for Jace, uh, we didn't tell them and in the beginning and we didn't tell them about the Matic and that. And that came back to bite us big time. So we came to the conclusion we'll just tell them everything. But in saying that we did from then on, but it's always there now that we held back this and then there was a bit of information we held back that I accidentally let out when we were talking and I don't think they'll ever forgive me. And I don't blame them, but I was, as a mum, I was trying to do the right thing by them. Yes, they are by this stage adult boys, but they're still my babies. Of course. In time, they'll come to understand, I'm sure. You were doing what you thought was best. Of course. It's sometimes what we thought was best and what we're told to do as well. By May 2008, the Levisons were relieved when a new detective was put in charge of Matt's investigation. The new detective and her team spent three months going back over all the evidence police had so far. One thing she questioned was the mess of wires in the back of Matt's car found alongside the Bunnings receipt. What had the wires been connected to, she wondered. She spoke to the Levisons and they told her about the subwoofer that Pete had made for himself and that when it wouldn't fit into his new car, he'd installed it into Matt's. It took up most of the boot space. The subwoofer was definitely in Matt's car the day before he disappeared because a colleague had commented on the music blaring as he drove away on the Saturday after work. When the detective watched the video of the search of Atkins' garage, she noticed the subwoofer among the footage. Atkins is showing where the car was, and there's a common area where the cars are parked, and the back of the common area is a bit of storage. As it pans around, here's the speaker from Matt's car in the garage. They didn't know they were looking for it. Peter Elvis made a, a great big boombox, which he didn't need anymore, and got Matt to use the back of his Corolla Seeker. It occupied three quarters of the boot space. So in Matt's car, apart from Bunnings' receipt, was these wires. These just strands of wire. And uh, what it was is the boombox had been hastily ripped out to make space for his body. So that's stuck in the storage place at the, at the inner block. So, you know, this was sort of not recognised by the early police. Took them three months and a cop rang me up three months after. They'd had the car twice and forensically tested it twice. They gave it back to us, took it away, bought it back. And then three months after that, she said, did Matt have something in the boot of the car? Yeah, the boombox. Yeah, the boombox. What? <laughs> oh, it's not there. So how many months down the track? Three. Three months. Yeah. And Three then the months. police asked her to identify this boombox at the police station and out comes this great big brown paper parcel. Put it on the, on the desk and I was covering like the evidence tape. Here's the copper. What are you doing? Oh, I'm getting the tape off the off So the we parcel. can reuse it. This is expensive tape. We don't want to have to try and, we don't want to try and save this tape. And he's, you're kidding. And he's. It's not, we, we've got to keep to a budget and um, it's too expensive to, to put use new tape. And finally out there and wrap this frigging thing. We, yeah, yeah, that's the boombox. And she thinks, tape it up again. And... Oh my gosh, the absurdity. Yeah, yeah. And a female detective told us during the investigation when I said they weren't doing enough, oh, we've spent over budget on yours, well over budget than what we normally do. Gee, thanks for that. The forensic examination of Matt's phone and laptop yielded some interesting results. The phone had been found under a seat in Atkins' car. 
On the Sunday Matt went missing, someone had purchased two tickets to Sleazeball for the following weekend. Sleazeball is a popular gay and lesbian event in Sydney. It would later be revealed that a week after Matt went missing, Atkins attended with a young man in his late teens who overdosed on a vial of GHB given to him by Atkins. During that first week, which was made known through the trial and the inquest, was that on the Sunday afternoon, about 4pm, Atkins is in the, the lounge room of the unit at Cronulla, Atkins on the computer booking a motel, a hotel for the following weekend's sleazeball, buying tickets for sleazeball, so you take it put in your part of the sleazeball, and he did attend on the following Saturday. And that wasn't the only hooking up Atkins did in the week after Matt went missing. As well as booking tickets to sleazeball on the Sunday, Atkins texted an 18-year-old young man he'd had sex with before and during his relationship with Matt. He also visited a gay hookup website called Manhunt. Police also discovered that on the Wednesday after Matt went missing, Atkins took a trip to Newcastle, about a two to two and a half hour drive north of Sydney, to meet up with a 23-year-old university student given the pseudonym Bradley Johns. This was the day after Atkins had met with Mark and Faye at the police station to report Matt missing. Atkins and Bradley had been chatting online, having phone sex and using webcams for the past three months. And late on Tuesday night, after Atkins got home from the police station, he contacted Bradley to suggest that they finally meet in person. Atkins arrived at Bradley's apartment around 9.30 on Wednesday night and immediately asked to take a shower. After showering, the two had sex and then relaxed with some dinner and drinks. Atkins told Bradley that Matt had gone away for a while. Just as Bradley was getting bored of the old man with the weird sense of humour, a friend rang and invited them to a nightclub. It was just the excuse Bradley needed to get Atkins out of his house. He would later describe how he slipped away from Atkins. Under the cover of the nightclub smoke machine, Bradley dashed out of the club, went home, locked his door and turned his phone off. Atkins tried calling Bradley at 3.11am, but the call went unanswered. Despite the distance back home, after a night of sex, drugs and nightclubbing, Atkins drove back in time for work the next day. Bradley never saw Atkins again. After being contacted by the police regarding Atkins, Bradley bagged his work clothes that were still at his house. But after a few weeks, and before Bradley could get them to the police, they went missing. Bradley believes his flatmate threw them away thinking they were rubbish. This is all going on behind the scenes we weren't aware of, and uh, the police didn't know of the ticket booking and the apartment until after they did some checking of his, his computer and other records. Because Atkins left his work clothes up there. So when they went to the club, he slipped away came back to the unit and locked Atkins out and never answered the door when Atkins came back. So he had his work clothes. He put them in a garbage bag. Threw them away. And threw them away. Now, there may have been clues no one will ever know. On Saturday the 29th of September, Atkins did indeed attend Sleazeball at Fox Studios in Moore Park. Atkins gave the second ticket he purchased to a former casual sex partner who was 19 years old. Atkins told him that Matt was going with other people, and he certainly didn't mention that Matt was missing. During the night, Atkins bumped into Matt's friends, who were given the pseudonyms Bob and Ken, 
both of whom were surprised to see him at the event. Bob asked questions about Matt, which Atkins evaded before abruptly leaving. Another of Atkins' friends, who was given the pseudonym Craig, the one who helped him upload a photo of Matt and email it to the police, also bumped into Atkins at the event. He too asked about Matt, but Atkins was dismissive and flirtatious instead. Disgusted with Atkins' behaviour, Craig left him alone. And if that wasn't enough hooking up in the week Matt disappeared, the following night, Sunday, Atkins rented a deluxe king room for two adults at the Grace Hotel near Sydney Harbour for $225 per night. He and another former casual partner stayed together overnight where they had sex. Atkins never once mentioned Matt or that he was missing. The new lead detective prepared a brief of evidence and gave it to her superiors. She got approval to arrest Michael Atkins, but made sure she told Mark and Faye first. She couldn't go into the details, but Mark was determined to witness the arrest. At 4am each morning, he waited outside Atkins' apartment. On Tuesday the 5th of August, Mark finally got to see Atkins arrested. He was formally charged with the murder of Matthew Levison. The arrest was interesting too because the arrest, he went down to um, Sutherland Police Station uh, where they formally charged him in court, but he wouldn't come into the court, which is his right. He stayed in the cells below court, which means he couldn't apply for bail. So he didn't even have a go at bail. He sat on remand in Silverwater for 13 months before the trial started. Now, we don't know the motivation of that, whether he thought, oh, well, I'll get time served, I'll get convicted of murder. We don't know. On this same day Atkins was arrested, the police filed a report with the New South Wales coroner, which set out the background details and known facts in relation to Matt's disappearance. Ten days later, on the 15th of August 2008, the Deputy State Coroner, Magistrate Paul McMahon, opened a coronial inquest into Matt's disappearance. Relying on the details provided in the police report, the State Coroner made the following findings. That Matt had died on Sunday, September 23, 2007. That Matt had died at Cronulla. Such an inquest would then usually proceed to a determination of the manner and cause of death. However, as was required by law, the coroner suspended the inquest because by then, Atkins had been charged with Matt's murder. The wheels of justice turned slowly. It would take another year after the arrest, and two since Matt's disappearance, for the man charged with his murder to come to trial. The trial started on the 31st of August 2009 and ran for eight weeks before Justice Peter Hidden. That's right, Justice Hidden. Atkins had remained in custody, on remand, since his arrest. Mark, Faye, Peter and Jason Levison went to court every day. Mark and Faye were particularly disturbed by something Atkins' defence barrister did each morning as they arrived at court. He walked past and as soon as he see us and get near us, he started whistling. Just, you know, oh, it's a happy day, it's a good day. For as long as the justice system is adversarial, one side against the other, that behaviour will continue to thrive. But to regular folk like the Levisons, it's just plain rude. Atkins' defence lawyer would uh, appear in court and often he'd be in the toilet the same time I was. 
Evie whistling away and yeah, saying what a nice day it was. I just felt like pushing him into the urinal. The family would be all standing outside the court and he'd walk past us and he'd be whistling, like just whistling as if, you know, he's happy and everybody should be happy and we, we're there grieving our son. And you, you could tell because he, he, he did it when he got close to us. It wasn't as if he was whistling across the whole place as when he got close to us. On the anniversary of Matt's death, he did it again. The trial actually went through the day that Matt had, was his anniversary and he was behind me in court as we were coming out in court and he's saying, oh, what a lovely day it is, what a beautiful day, knowing darn well that it was the anniversary of Matt because it had been mentioned in court. He just little quirks like that. Yeah, I wonder whether he was trying to um, provoke a reaction they could use or to... Uh intimidate us? Uh, I don't know. The ways of the courts never really make sense to families full of grief, there each day, hoping to see justice in a system that seems ill-designed to deliver it. Where every right seems to be extended to the accused. And yet, the Levisons could be warned in open court not to intimidate the jurors. As if they would. But once the words are spoken aloud... They hang in the air like possibilities. I was in court the first day of the jury selection and we're told that, like, I'm aware the members of the family are here and, uh, you know, you must not at any stage approach or talk to the jurors or intimidate them in any way. We, did, we didn't, of course. But the worst thing was we didn't interact with them at all and we had a little favourite cafe we go to before court. We're getting there early, have breakfast in there, so we didn't rush to, have to rush to court. And we had a break in court and half the jurors walked past our cafe. They'd look and say, they'd nod and smile. We'd look away. Because I mean, we were told don't make, a, don't make rude eye bastards. contact with them. What must they have thought of us? On the first day of the trial, Atkins was neatly dressed in a suit and blue shirt. Particularly upsetting for the Levisons was the fact that Atkins wore Matt's red tie to court. That bastard, he wore Matt's tie to every court case for his hearing. And the inquest. And at his trial, because they bring him up, the jury wouldn't come in until they bring him up through the middle of the court into the dock where he sat in a normal suit. So they never knew he was in jail. In the, um, the afternoon, the, the jury would, would be discharged today. The then after they're gone, in come correct services and escort him downstairs so he'd get changed back in his prison greens again. And he always had Matt's red tie on. This episode is brought to you by Bin Verified. Help chip away at the uncertainty that comes with online dating and use binverified.com, a leading platform for online background searches and people search reports. With their powerful search tools and extensive database, you could easily gather information about potential dates, which may help you find peace of mind before taking that next step. You can never be too safe when it comes to dating. Get 20% off today to help take control of your dating game. Visit binverified.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In the beginning, when Matt first went missing, only Faye gave a statement to police because when they reported Matt missing, the detective told the couple, women observe more than men. 
When Faye gave her statement, Mark sat in and listened, but wasn't asked to give one himself. Jason too had come forward to say he witnessed an altercation between Matt and Atkins at a birthday party a few weeks before Matt went missing. They told the police about it, but they didn't get a statement from him even though what he witnessed bore testament to what the relationship was like in the weeks before Matt was last seen. Police eventually got statements from Mark and Jason, but not until a few months before the trial started. And that caused problems in court. So then, a couple of months before we're going to trial, they're taking Mark and Jason's statement. And, of course, when it gets to trial, the defence lawyer just rips into Jason and tells him he's a liar. Yeah, you think of all this. You've had 12 months to to come up with this. You're just trying to protect your brother. When the incident that Jason had witnessed between Matt and Atkins was brought up during the trial, Atkins' defence argued that it was not an argument between them, but rather a reenactment of something Atkins had seen occur between other people. Just because the trial was on didn't mean that life was put on hold for the Levisons. Mark and Faye still had to operate their business and meet with clients late at night after court to pay the bills. All while dealing with the stress of the murder trial. Adding to their stress, Mark couldn't even witness the first few weeks of the trial. As with all court matters, witnesses are unable to sit in the court and observe proceedings until they have presented their evidence to the court and been cross-examined. Faye was called to give evidence straight away, after which she was able to sit in the courtroom. However, Mark would have to wait. The toll that took on Mark, and by extension, his whole family, was huge. Because I was barred from the trial for two and a half weeks, and that was just it at least sent me insane. Because they said to us before the trial started, you can't attend the trial till you've testified because you may get influenced by what you've heard. And that makes common sense. And they said, look, as parents, we'll get you guys on at the start. Great. So Faye was number one. Matt's work colleague was number two, I think. And the boys were three and four. Great. I was number 18. The reason being... I wore listing devices and they wanted my evidence to come out at a certain point in the prosecution. In the meantime, we all thought Mark was going to have a stroke. I take the family to court and I just walk the streets of Darlinghurst and uh, Dennis Tenniel Park, Paddington to kill time. And the, and the family were instructed, you mustn't discuss what's being said in court to your husband. I was just about to ask, were you like sneakily recording things or taking notes or you couldn't? They couldn't say a thing to me. Oh my gosh. So there was that there would have been distance between you two because you can't... I was excluded. Oh, my God. And then it got to the point where he couldn't take it anymore and he, he got up, he, he yelled at, we were out, sitting around the table, he said, that's it, I can't be seen with you caught people and he just took off. So therefore, I, then he was gone for hours and I'm scared that he'd done something to himself. And for weeks, this is how the court seemed to the Levisons. It was a parallel universe where it's okay to separate a wife from her husband during the hardest days of her life, then for her to feel that she and her sons were under attack. And in this version of hell, the mother just has to sit and watch it happen. It was the most horrendous thing for me as a mum because Mark didn't get to see it. The defence tried to tell me I didn't know my own son's birth date. He kept saying Matt's birthday was the 12th of October and I'm going, no, 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 it's the 12th of December. Oh, well, it must be a typo then. And then he tried to say that 
I didn't know my son's colour of his eyes because I said they were blue, greeny blue, depending on what he, what colour he wore. And because I didn't know his height in centimetres and that we had a hateful relationship and we were always fighting and Matt had a double life. And that was bad enough to sit through. But when they put my sons on the stand and I didn't have Mark beside me and they're calling Jason a liar, they're more or less calling Peter a liar, it, just, it was just horrible to see my sons get ripped apart and especially Jace because that was the police at the beginning. They didn't take his statement and now he, that the defence is using that against him and with Peter, Atkinson made up this story about Pete which wasn't true, which later on other people took the stand and it wasn't true and there was nothing I could do. I just had to sit there on my hands and watch them get destroyed And it just, I I couldn't do anything. It just, it was the most horrible thing. And they said to us, don't worry, the defence won't have a go at the family because it'll look bad in in front of the jury. That wasn't the case. They tore into us. They tore. Hearing of the exhaustion the Levisons experienced during the trial is heart-wrenching. Day after day, they made the journey into the city. And then, regardless of how battered they were by the day's proceedings, Mark had to work long into the night to see his clients so the family could pay the bills and keep their business operating. Well, what I was doing through the whole trial, even before I could and couldn't go into court, I was going to gym in the morning before court, that was a good stress relief, and seeing clients for night time. I still had to pay a mortgage and and see clients, so I was seeing clients every night after court. We'd come home from court and Mark would be out to 10, 11 o'clock at night seeing clients because it was our busy period. They couldn't have picked a worse time for us. It was August. Yeah, August, September, our our busiest month for the tax season and uh, you've got to go and do the work. Oh, my God, you must have been exhausted. Pretty much. I slept well on weekends. And adding to the stress and stretching out the trial that already seemed to go on forever the prison guards went on strike, which affected Atkins' ability to be shuttled from prison to court. Mentioning to what the jurors don't know, two-thirds through the, through the trial, I was in the court by this stage, Justice Peter Hidden, our judge, said to the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, um, Mr Atkins uh, can't get to court tomorrow through no fault of his own, so we need to have a lay day and make up some paperwork, so... Um, don't be concerned. Uh, we'll see you the day after. If the problem's not resolved, we'll let you know. And in fact, it lasted two days. Atkins couldn't get there, but through no fault of his own, that's all they were told. They actually a prison warders strike on, and they're the ones that convey the person from prison to the court. And so they couldn't drive the bastard in. So they, that's why he couldn't be there. During the trial, it was revealed that it was Atkins who was primarily involved with the sale of drugs. Atkins always claimed it was Matt who ran the show. However, this was later disproved when online conversations between Matt and Atkins were retrieved from the seized computers. They showed that Matt had no knowledge of drugs until he and Atkins got together. The person Atkins sourced his drugs from also testified. In the murder trial, Atkins was trying to blame Matt and say, oh, it was all Matt with the drug selling, and the prosecution was able to get the drug supplier to Atkins to come into court and say, look, I recall seeing Matt once or twice in the back of the car, but I dealt with him and pointed to Atkins. Okay, and then there was evidence of that when the yeah. laptop was found with all that. Yeah, it was him talking to Maddie and telling him about different sorts of drugs and Maddie said, oh, what does that do, what's this? And then Not the drug dealer, uh, No, Atkins. no, with Atkins, sorry. And then further down, the th- 
the conversation. It was sort of, ah, ha, ha, I'm a drug virgin. So Maddie had no idea what different things were and he was... And how long before Matt went missing was this interaction going on? I think when he first... Two months. Two we, months, when first, yeah. When, about, about the time Matt was moving yeah. in his place, I think. Oh, just before he moved out, mm. yeah. As we covered earlier, when Atkins was initially interviewed by police in the first days of the investigation, he was interviewed as a voluntary person. His status changed during this interview from a voluntary person to a suspect. However, he wasn't recautioned at this point. Atkins' defence team successfully argued to have the portion of the interview ruled inadmissible from the time Atkins should have been recautioned as a suspect. As a result, the jury was only able to view and hear two hours of a three and a half hour interview. This missing hour and a half contained Atkins' denial about going to Bunnings on Sunday the 23rd of September and the purchase of the mattock and the duct tape. This was critical, as Atkins later admitted to the Levisons, while they were secretly recording him, that he did in fact go to Bunnings and purchase the tape and mattock, despite him earlier denying it in his police interview. However, the jury would never get to hear Atkins' denial to police. Not only was this missing portion of the electronically recorded interview of a suspected person, or an heiress, not seen by the jury, but the CCTV footage of Atkins in Bunnings was also not seen by the jury. For Mark and Faye to hear the reason that they had to face the ordeal of visiting Atkins wearing a listening device to get his confession about going to Bunnings, well, to put it mildly, they were furious. I was ropeable. Absolutely ropeable, especially when they told us that there came a point, we knew which point it was, that he wasn't read his rights, that he'd gone from being a volunteer there to now being their one and only suspect. Having a senior homicide investigator in the room, you know, a senior officer present, and, you know, what Atkins was allowed to get away with, it just shocked us. The more we heard it, the more we were shocked. There was... A degree of, of course, you want cooperation. So a degree of letting him talk freely, but the degree of probing was uh, was rather scant. So keep in mind, we're not trained investigators. We don't know how this works. So we're watching this as spectators. And but when you have professionals such as the coroner, other senior police, question what we've done in that first era, it made us then ask more questions. So you know, we didn't know that it was deficient until was explained to us by people who had far more knowledge and skills in that area. And I've since heard as well that there's been other cases where very similar circumstances where the person has escalated from just helping out with inquiries up to being a a suspect, not cautioned, and the courts have allowed it to go ahead. They've let that evidence come in. And in our case, it wasn't allowed in, so it must depend on the judge of the day. Or do you think your case changed that? I don't think so. I think it's a lot to do with the judges. After all of the evidence was presented in court and witnesses cross-examined, it was time for the jury to deliberate. Before they entered into deliberations, Justice Hidden explained to the jury that they must draw their own conclusions from the evidence presented as to whether Matt was in fact dead and who was responsible. Quote, Very little of the evidence in this case appears to be in dispute. 
What is really at issue in this case is what conclusions you draw from the evidence. That is really the vital area of contention here. Whether Matthew Levison is dead is a question you must decide. If the accused killed him, there is no evidence as to how or in precisely what circumstances. That means that the question of whether Matthew Levison is dead is very much a matter of conclusion from the whole of the evidence on your part. Justice Hidden directed the jury as to the difference between murder and manslaughter, in that they are both an unlawful killing, with murder being by a deliberate act or intention to cause serious harm, and manslaughter being by a dangerous act. He told the jury that to find in favour of one or the other, the jury would need to be satisfied that there was no other reasonable conclusion as to what had happened to Matt. The judge summed up the prosecution case as follows. Put shortly, the Crown case is this. The relationship between the accused and Matthew Levison was souring. Matthew saw the accused as possessive and dominating. On the Saturday evening, he said to a colleague that he was going to stand his ground. They were both at the Ark nightclub on the Saturday night and into the early hours of the Sunday morning. They left the club together sometime after 3am and it is clear from a text message which Matthew then sent to John Burns that he was not happy. He was affected by drugs. The Crown says you would infer that sometime after that there was a confrontation between the two men which became heated, so much so that the accused, in anger, killed Matthew Levison. The Crown says most likely that happened back at the unit at Cronulla and that it happened sometime on the morning of Sunday 23 September. The Crown says that the accused drove the Corolla, that is Matthew Levison's car, to Bunnings and bought the Matic and the tape. He removed the subwoofer box from the boot of the Corolla. He wrapped Matthew's body in the tape and placed him in the boot. He drove to some bushland somewhere, probably an area somewhere in the general area where the Corolla was found in Sutherland, and there he dug a grave with the mattock and buried Matthew. He left the Corolla parked at Waratah Park and at some stage he disposed of the mattock and the tape and the key to the Corolla. The defence case was far shorter. Their case was simple. Justice Hidden told the jury, put briefly, the defence case is that Matthew Levison simply left the accused on the Sunday night. They say it's a bad sign when the jury return and won't look at you. For the Levisons, that's what they noticed when the jury came back from their five-day deliberation. The police said to us after the selection of the jurors, when they saw what they looked like, their demographic, they thought, this is a good mix. They were quite confident when they seen what years we had. We'd lost our courtroom because our case went over time. So during the deliberation, which was over five days, another trial started in our court. So we moved to a much smaller court for the verdict. And the jury was literally no more than two metres from us and they wouldn't look at us. They entered the court with the verdict and they wouldn't come up and look at us. They just head down and uh, that wasn't a good sign. During deliberation, after about two, three hours, they said they couldn't reach a verdict, and Justice Hidden said, look, come on, you only had two hours, get back out there, read your notes and do your work. So off they got sent again, and then about three days in, they came back into court and said, look, Your Honour, can you define for us in layman's terms the distinction between murder and manslaughter? 
And he said, look, well, it's the intent component. If you intended to kill or hurt someone badly, that's, that's murder. And we thought, we all thought that's, that's a good question, sensible question. Off they go again. And then about day five, they came in and said, can you define for us what is reasonable doubt? And uh, Justice Hidden said, look, I'm sorry, uh, the High Court directs that I can't tell you. It's what you think it is. And you know, our gut feels they had in their mind, no doubt, not reasonable doubt. We don't know. Again, after that, they still couldn't reach a verdict, so they gave them what's called the black direction, where they allowed to reach a majority verdict of 11 to 1. If that was the case, they went to tell the court they did that, but that was enough to form a verdict. And uh, not too long after that, they came back into court with their, with their verdicts. After five days of deliberation, on the 20th of October 2009, the jury could not reach a unanimous verdict, and so Justice Hidden permitted a majority verdict. The jury found Atkins to be not guilty of murder and not guilty of manslaughter. It was an unfair advantage for the defence, because on the Thursday, the prosecution gave their summing up to the jury... And then because one of the jurors couldn't make it the next day. I just can't believe it. The jury couldn't come on that, that day because he was settling on his house purchase. So the judge said, we'll have a day off that day. We've gone over time, so you've got to sell on your house, so that's okay, we'll have a day off. We've got to catch up with the administration. They heard the prosecutors summing up on the Thursday. The defence counsel gave his summing up on the Monday and the jury then went out to deliberate. They had the Friday and the weekend to forget the prosecution's version of events. If anything, I was hoping and I thought that they would let him summarise what he'd said so they had the both views fresh in their mind, but they didn't. In the summing up, these more or less says to the jury why they should find Atkins guilty, you know, all, the, all the circumstances along the way. So they heard that on the Thursday... And then the defence comes along on the Monday and gives them all the reasons why they should find him not guilty. And of course, it wasn't just the order of the summing up that bothered the Levisons. It was all the things the jury didn't get to hear. As a whole, the case made sense to them and pointed squarely at Atkins. When bits were left out, it seemed to the Levisons that the story was never going to be as compelling to a jury. There are good legal reasons for making sure that the evidence a jury relies on to make high-stakes decisions in criminal trials is reliable and that suspects are properly cautioned about their rights. But for people outside the justice system, it's hard to fathom a system that has two different cautions and requires an interview to stop in the middle so that an interviewee who just turned into a suspect can be taken back to the custody officer to be re-cautioned. Imagine if the jury did hear Atkins' denials that he'd gone to Bunnings, then seen the CCTV, and heard what he bought. Duct tape and a matic. And then how he told the Levisons that he was too scared to tell the police he'd bought the matic because he and Matt wanted to grow zucchinis. There were a number of other minor points too, which I really can't recall now, but there were many times the jury were dismissed from the courtroom uh, where the defence, knowing what was coming up in the prosecution case, would argue why they shouldn't be allowed into the trial. The Levisons say they questioned the prosecutor during and after the trial about why he wasn't pushing harder on objections. He said, look, if we let them get their way, there's less chance of an appeal when he's found guilty. Guess what? 
he wasn't found guilty. We um, heard the first day the judge tell the, the impaneled jurors about this very important trial coming up. You must pay full attention, devote your time to this trial and, and uh, not be swayed from what you hear in court. Having said that, during the trial, many jurors would see after lunch particularly nodding off, going to sleep. And we thought when the Atkins verdict came down, we have a go at trying to get a mistrial. So we contacted the DPP and said, look, we know that many jurors through the course of the evidence were actually asleep. Uh, so they weren't paying attention. Now, is that grounds for mistrial? Well, sadly it wasn't. Just clutching its straws again. Under whose direction? Who was kind of giving you these ideas? Or you were just coming up with them yourself? Ourselves. Just clutching yeah. its straws. Gosh. Oh. The not guilty verdict wasn't just hard on the Levisons. Looking around them, Mark and Faye could see gut-wrenching, visceral reactions in everyone close to the case. According to the Levisons, the prosecutor was trembling. His assisting solicitor apologised to us. She apologised to us. The detective that brought the case to trial, she was vomiting. I'm the mum and I was shaken and that, and here's a, a seasoned detective vomiting at the, at the verdict. Shocking. How on earth, what was the 24 hours like after that for you guys? What did you do after that when you left court, stunned? I kept thinking of Atkins. The reaction we mentioned before, he was on remand for 13 months waiting for this trial. You're going through the ordeal of a trial, being brought to court each day and going through six weeks of evidence and a week of deliberation, not knowing whether you can be found guilty of murder or not, and then be told you're a free man, off you go. His face was just a blank slate. No emotion, nothing. He just stood there. He just stood there. The man has no emotions at all. And that image just still plays in there. I can see his face now. It just plays in our mind. He didn't flinch. He didn't move. He just stood there. Every other person in that courtroom had, this, had striking reactions of all differing degrees. He had nothing. Yep. We just, I think we were in shock for ages after that. We just, the world just seemed to stand still. You know, people were talking at us and nothing was going in. You know, the reporters were asking and I don't even know if I strung sentences that made sense together. No, we were just numb. Yeah. And it was a very quiet trip home in the car that day. I just, yeah, I can't. I'm so often with you guys totally speechless, as I'm sure many people are, because it's just unfathomable. We can't approach jurors or chase jurors down, but... Uh, I'd love one of them to come forward, let the world know what happened in that jury room. It's incredible. Oh, I would be very surprised if jury members weren't following the whole story and would most likely some would be listening to you now. What an experience for them to have been involved with. Well, I mentioned you over lunch how what I would call rude our behaviour was. We were instructed early on that uh, as victims in the trial we were not to approach talk to or interact with the jury. Common sense, of course he wouldn't, that's fine. And, you know, half of them would pass us going to court each morning at our favourite coffee shop. Uh, they'd look in and nod and smile and we'd look away. That's what we're instructed to do. And that's just, I, I call that rude. But we had to do that. And even to the fact when they moved it to the smaller court, we were waiting outside the small court to be let in. And they asked the family to move away because they were bringing the jury across. That goes to show we were doing the right thing, but were the jury told that we weren't allowed to make contact with them, eye contact, 
I don't know. Uh, so we had to move away and turn our backs while they brought the jury into the court. A few days after the trial had finished, Mark and Faye went into the city to see the Crown Prosecutor. While in the city, Faye got the opportunity to have a dig at Atkins' defence barrister, and she took it. Well, I think it was a couple of days later for... A debrief. A debrief. Mark and Faye saw the defence barrister sitting there with friends, laughing and talking. At the Dang Centre, wasn't it? The, the Downing Centre. Center. We had a cup of coffee before we went in. And I said, I'm going over to him, Mark. No, no, you can't do that. You'll you'll get arrested. I said, no, I'm going over. No, I said, okay, I won't. As we stood up to leave. Faye approached the barrister. And he looked round with a big smile on his face and he said, yes. I said, I hope you sleep of a night time because I don't. And his jaw dropped and all the others that were with him, five other barristers, they just stopped and they looked. And I walked round, and it was where the glass window was. And as I walked past, I just kept... And he was just stunned. He was just stunned. But it made me feel better. Yeah, good. <laughs> Any opportunity to feel less shit, take it. With the devastation of the not guilty verdict and being no closer to finding Matt, the Levisons had to figure out how not to be overcome by the hopelessness. Mark and Faye decided to commemorate their lost son through a series of tattoos. We all grieve differently. Fate's a hoarder, I'm not. <laughs> um, my motto, when in doubt, throw it out. Okay. Uh, I would have kept nothing. Matt doesn't need it, but I respect Faye's choice to keep those things so that they're, they're all still here. But that's, that's not what I would have done. I cope different ways. I've started covering myself in tattoos. Of Matt, dedicated to Matt. And, and uh, I had one before the trial. I called it my tombstone tattoo because we had no tombstone for Matt. And it was Matt's picture and his date of birth, date of death, and um, a small verse below it. And that's what I started with. And the, the tattoo artist said, look, that's, that looks good. We'll see you again. I said, no, you want the one? He said, yeah, yeah, sure. Knowing that they're addictive. And they, I'll go about, I think, 14 or more now. And... Uh, Almost all dedicated to Matt. Various sayings, motivational sayings or pictures of Matt or the other two boys. A revenge arm with uh, uh, Charles Bronson uh, with a revenge saying. But they're all revolving around Matt and that's how I cope. That's my memories. And I get to look at them every day. And they are, they are motivational to you. Like you'll see them. And I wondered at what points throughout the process you got those tattoos and, and how that decision-making happened and whether or not you would look in the mirror before going to court and be more motivated well, it, it, by having... It's funny, I, I never liked tattoos, never considered them at all. I yeah, thought of that was, I wasn't the person for a tattoo, but uh, I was at a, uh, a support group and a, a lady there had lost her husband and she showed me the tattoo that she'd done in honour of her husband. And I thought, that's a damn good idea. And that got me thinking and then I got the nerve to go and get one done. And, um, hey, it's, it's been a sensation when it's been done, but I thought it's such a good reason I don't care. And I had only the one done before the trial, I'm sure. You had your motivational ones for the trial. On the arms too, were they? Yep. Yeah, they were Because you wanted on. to go in with a singlet or short sleeves and show the tats and we, the police say, no. Don't, don't, don't. Don't, just cover them up. Don't show people your tats. But that, yeah, that's, that's what I've done. And uh, they are some as well, but they're, uh, in a way... What's the word? Cathartic. But even the boys, Jason got his first tattoo and it's angel wings on his back. That was for Matt. And then he got a, with the Egyptian ink, with 
wording for Maddie. The never-ending story movie, that was the kid's favourite, still our favourite. He's got Velcro from his shoulder down his arm. And then Peter's got a picture of Maddie on his arm and a sleeve done with things that him and his brother had in common, like their diving and the music and things they did. So he's got tattoos too. So from a family of no tattoos to we're full of tattoos, I've got them over me. They're in places where I can cover. I forget I've got them sometimes and then I'm wondering why people are looking at me and I'm like, oh, there's a tattoo showing. (laughs) But, yeah, it's just our way of honouring Matt. On my left arm is my Charles Bronson tattoo. I might explain that one in a little bit of detail. Charles Bronson was a tough guy actor in the 70s. He played in a series of movies called Death Wish where his wife and daughter were raped and murdered. The system, legal system then let them all off. So he took law into his own hands and became a vigilante. Uh, he gave himself a revolver around killing all the bad guys and trying to find the ones that um, did this to his family and got stuck into them as well. A very bloodthirsty kind of movie, and on my left arm is a picture of Charles Bronson, who plays Paul Kersey in this series, holding a revolver, pointing towards you, and below it I have some Latin. The Latin says, Fiat Justitia, which means let justice be done. The police have seen my tattoo and love it. They know it. It's just more symbolic. I'm not going to go and do that, but it's just a bit of peace of mind, a bit of therapy. Okay, wow. And what about you, Faye? I've actually got their names in their own handwriting on my heart. I got the boys to write their name down for me, but Matt's was his last Christmas card to me. So that's on my chest. And then I've got, when he first went missing, I've got a frangipani, because he loved frangipanis, and a Ulysses butterfly with, Matt, your memories will never die. Beautiful. That's a really lovely way to honour him and remember him and yep. keep him with you, literally yeah. on you. Yeah. It's, it's there forever. Yeah. It's the tattoo on Mark's left arm that best reflects his experience with the police and the courts. Inked on Mark's left arm are the words... It's not a justice system, it's just a system. On the next episode of Maddie... It was a significant breakthrough in the case. Physically conducting a ground search to find your missing child. I've called the police, I've found a grave, there's a mattock in the bush. Yeah, with the chance of finding Matt, there's probably one in a million, one in ten million, but it wasn't zero. So we've got to give it a go.